We are always looking for fun and a reason to celebrate anything here at Remnant Stew. I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm your host, Steve. There are always celebrations going on all around the world, and today we're bringing you some of the oddest and downright bizarre celebrations and festivals that we could find. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Now, before we dive into those wonderfully weird celebrations, let's take a look at the calendar. Actually, some of these kind of could count as celebrations, too. In fact, uh, uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, February the 1st, is Chinese New Year. Hey. Yeah. Also known as Spring Festival or Lunar New Year, it marks the beginning of the year in Chinese calendars. It is celebrated in China by grandchildren bowing down to honor their grandparents In return, the grandparents present red envelopes to their grandchildren containing cash and wishes for prosperity in the new year. I could use some of that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, By the way, 2022 is the year of the tiger, replacing 2021. That was the year of the ox. So that might explain a few things about 2021, the ox. Kind of slow and ponderous. Tiger should spring right into action, though, don't you think? <laughs> That's should right. Crank it right out. So anyway, Happy New Year to all of our listeners in China. Yes. Now, of course, Wednesday, February the 2nd, is Groundhog Day. Which is a, that is a weird holiday, I think. <laughs> it's pretty weird. Right. Uh, Groundhog Day is part of a popular culture among many Americans, and it centers on the idea of the groundhog coming out of its home to, quote, predict the weather. Oh, Yes. Thousands of years ago, when animalism and nature worship were prevalent, people in Germany believed that the head, I'm sorry, that the badger had the power to predict the coming of spring. They watched the badger to know when to plant their crops. Well, by the time the first German immigrants settled in Pennsylvania, they probably understood that this was not true. But you know, traditions die hard, and so they discontinued and uh, substituted the groundhog for the badger. Now, of course, the movie Groundhog Day from 1993, <laughs> starring uh, comedian Bill Murray, oh, such a made movie. Punxsutawney Phil in Pennsylvania famous worldwide. Uh, of course, the, the groundhog, if he sees his shadow, uh, that means there will be uh, six more weeks of winter. But if he doesn't see his shadow, that, that means it will be an early spring. Of course, here in uh, the greater cut-and-shoot area, we're usually hoping for more winter because it's pretty mild here in the winter. <laughs> so if the and armadillo sees it, <laughs> armadillo <laughs> sees a shallow, shadow, yeah. Uh, now, that, that movie, the film's plot, added new meaning to the term Groundhog Day. That's right. As something that repeats itself endlessly. It just goes over on and on and, and on, over and over and over the same thing. It's like Groundhog Day. I remember the the alarm clock going off with with Sunny and Sunny Cher. And Cher. <laughs> they say we're young and we don't know. <laughs> well, Saturday, February fifth. Now this is a good day. Rosa Parks Day on December first, nineteen fifty five. African American seamstress Rosa Parks was traveling in a Montgomery, Alabama city bus when the bus driver asked her to vacate her seat for a white man. The driver's request was standard practice of racially uh, racial segregation in buses at the time. Rosa Parks refused to leave her seat on the grounds of fairness, freedom, and equality. And I heard her talk about it one time also because her feet were tired, she said. Uh, She just had enough. 
As a result, she was arrested and convicted of violating the laws of segregation, known as the Jim Crow laws. She appealed her conviction and formally challenged the legality of segregation. At the same time, civil rights activists led a boycott of the Montgomery bus system. The boycott lasted for 381 days. That kind of hit the city in their pocketbook because people were not riding the bus that normally would. Lasting into December 1956, when the United States Supreme Court ruled that the segregation law was unconstitutional and that the Montgomery buses should be integrated. This boycott kick-started other civil rights protested, uh, protests uh, throughout the United States. So it's a good day to honor and remember Rosa Parks and also note that February is celebrated as Black History Month. That's right. And I, you know, what Rosa Parks did was absolutely courageous. It was. But did you know that she wasn't the first one to do that? I have heard Um, that there are others that did it before her. Yes, for sure. That's right. So nine months before Rosa Parks defied segregation laws, um, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin did exactly the same thing. Claudette Colvin. Claudette Colvin. And so she was, you know, so later on, Rosa Parks eclipsed, you know, her act. And I heard, and I don't have proof, uh, that the uh, they didn't want a teenager. Right. To to jumpstart. Yeah, jumpstart all of that. So they so maybe the Rosa Parks thing was kind of. She was, a, she was a better kind of person to, to lead that right. movement. Right? That's right. And yeah. so instead of it being, you know, she was tired and, and all of that, yeah. that she was kind of actually set up to do that. Right. Uh, which makes it, I mean, I, to me, it doesn't take anything away from it <laughs> whatsoever. It was still a very uh, poignant point in history. Exactly. Yes, for sure. Okay. So before we, we get into our topic today, I got a couple things. We got a couple five-star ratings. No. Wow. Five-star reviews. Yes. Nice. And so... Um, Rebecca or cat lover zero two two zero two zero. No, sorry. Cat lover zero two two zero two, um, says this is amazing. <laughs> I love how the podcast is in the format of learning, but fun. Yay. And that's then, what we try to do. Learning, but fun. <laughs> and then Marvel lover 2.0. I don't know about all these Whatever. twos and zeros. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> says, I love this podcast. Best podcast Ever. Wow. Yeah, we'll so, take it. Thank yes, you. we'll take it. Thank <laughs> Thanks, you so much. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Oh, wait a minute. Wait. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cat Lover's your mom and Marvel Lover's dad? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Sure. Probably somebody. <laughs> but uh, we're very grateful for those, those wonderful we reviews. We absolutely are. Thank you very much. That's awesome. All right. Let's just take a quick little break here and let us just speak to you from our heart for a second. As you know, we are currently in our third season here at Remnant Stew, and we have brought you so many crazy and fun stories in our 40 or so episodes. We have been downloaded over 7,000 times across 42 different countries, Wow! and we are so thankful to every single one of our listeners. Yes. We really love what we do, and we are committed to continue bringing you more stories of the strange and bizarre for many more seasons. But while it is free for you to subscribe and listen... It isn't free for us to produce. That's right. So we are asking a favor from all of our listeners. 
No, we're not asking for money. But, but if you are so inclined, <laughs> we're not going to stop you. Don't pay attention to Phil. <laughs> no, we are asking instead that you take just a couple minutes of your time to show us some love by writing a short note saying what you love about Remnant Stew. Yeah. We are currently in a contest for emerging podcasts to be awarded sponsorships, and the notes that you send will help our standing in the contest. Absolutely. It takes just a couple of minutes. Please go to our website, www.remnantstew.com, and click on Show the Love and follow the, the instructions love. from there. It really is very easy, quick to do, and it would mean so much to us. Absolutely. So thank you in thank advance. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And now, back to our regularly scheduled episode. Dun, dun, dun. Well, now, throughout America and around the world, we find all kinds of celebrations, from religious festivals to rowdy competitions. It appears that we all look forward to finding something to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Leah, I know that up in your original hometown, up in Louisville, Kentucky, the great Kentucky Derby was a major annual event. Of course, I've seen pictures of all the women decked out in fancy hats and so forth. I love the tradition of the derby hats. I left Kentucky before I was able to to participate in any of that. I was a teenager when I left. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it the, the Southern Genteel sort of event, proper dress was very important, and the hats were always a part of it. Uh, but it was the 1960s when the hats started getting bigger and more elaborate <laughs> and bigger. And now it's a huge, it's a, it's a deal, quite a deal. But, uh, yeah. So it's a, it's a great deal for the hat manufacturing industry, I think, as well. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, that's true. You know, women used to wear hats often and not so much anymore. But uh, in Kentucky, they do around Derby Day. Now, of course, here locally in the greater cut and shoot area, every October we have the annual Cajun Catfish Festival. Mm. Of course, highlighted by the Catfish Pageant. <laughs> Which I'm not. <laughs> Is it the little catfishes with the little hats and they rock them? With, oh, wait, sorry. To, and their whiskers. <laughs> and their whiskers. <laughs> okay, so that catfish festival has been going on for over 30 years. Well, that's so. not a tradition. I don't know what is. Right, oh, right. But I had no idea there was a catfish pageant. I didn't know. I mean, like, who, a, who Yeah, wants, I didn't know there was a pageant either until and, a little bit ago. I looked it up. And so it, it like, has different age age groups or whatever, and it's Mr. and Mrs. Catfish. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Catfish. <laughs> so that's interesting. Very good. Well, a few years ago, my wife and I were in Italy. Uh, we happened to be in the town of Formia, Italy, which was holding its annual celebration of John the Disciple. Now, you might think a religious festival such as this would be rather somber, but not so. <laughs> oh, no. Why would you go small? <laughs> well, hey, <laughs> or you know, key. we know all about Mardi Gras. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> exactly. That's kind There's of the nothing low-key about anything of these. <laughs> the town was rocking until well after midnight with lots of very loud fireworks, but it was fun. As nice as these festivals are, though, we know what our listeners really like. You want the weird and bizarre, correct? Yes. Of course. Well, wait no more, as we have accumulated information on some of the weirdest festivals to be found anywhere in the world. From a terrific website called headout.com, H-E-A-D-O-U-T.com, we find a fun article called The 20 Most Unusual and Unique Festivals in the World. Nice. Now, we won't touch on all 20, but here are some Aww. of the more interesting ones. From, oh, I bet I'm going to botch the name of this town, but uh, help me out if I do. From El Salvador, we find La Bolas de Fuego, or the Fireballs. Well, oh, even better. Yeah. yeah. Each year on the evening of August 31st, residents of the small Salvadoran town of Nejapa, N-E-J-A-P-A, Nejapa, paint their faces to look like skulls, 
Okay. Uh, soak their clothes in a pair of and a pair of gardening gloves in water, and take to the streets in two teams for the annual Bolas del Fuego or Fireball Festival. This activity is a commemoration of the 1658 El Playon volcanic eruption. According to local legend, the eruption was actually a battle between the local patron saint San Geronimo and the devil. Of course. As a tribute to this divine clash between good and evil, Nehapa becomes an unregulated battleground for two warring groups who marinate balls of cloth in kerosene, <laughs> light them on fire, and marinate. hurl them at one another at close range. Boy, if that doesn't sound like a good time, I don't know what does. That sounds like my house when all my kids come home. <laughs> It's like bottle rocket tossing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. seriously. This is a, oof. Uh, flanking crowds cheer them on. Of History, course. I don't know which theme you cheer for, but don't Right. Who cares? They're throwing fireballs at each other. Right. <laughs> History has it that the natural disaster forced the villagers of the old town to flee and settle their, into their current location. Though dangerous, La mm -hmm. Bolas del Fuego has been running now for more than 100 years and now falls among the top uh, unusual festivals worldwide. Oh, well, I'm going to go out on a limb there and say that men decided to celebrate this way. <laughs> Perhaps drunk men, you think? <laughs> yes. And no questions asked at the beginning. Right. Yeah. 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 What could go wrong? We're just going to toss some fireballs at each other. Just duck. Now, let's move on now. Um, of course, Brazil has Rio Carnival. Everybody knows about that. But you might not know about South Korea. South Korea has something even better, they think, called the Boryong Mud Festival. Yeah, that's right. Situated about 200 kilometers from Seoul, the village of Boryong is widely popular for its mud cosmetics. <laughs> yeah, mud cosmetics. That sounds like a good good seller, doesn't it? So are they going to be doing what the fireball kind party well, is? Not quite. Not oh, okay. quite throwing the mud at each other. Well, maybe a little mud slinging goes on. You never know. <laughs> Anyway, what began as a marketing event in 1998 later turned into a renowned festival drawing in millions of visitors every year. While immersing yourself in mud can seem a bit odd, Boryong's mud stands out for its rich natural minerals and nutrients that have incredible benefits for the skin. The annual festival, held in July, runs 10 days straight, housing a series of activities that will get you drenched in the mud, such as mud pools, mud slides, and mud skiing, <laughs> along with an array right. of, of makeover and massage facilities as well. According to their website, the Boryong Mud Festival is one of the is the one and only festival where you can make your childhood dream of rolling in the fresh mud come true. Did you ever dream about that, Phil? Rolling in the mud? No, I just went and did it. Oh, okay. <laughs> you were just you were an action guy, not a dreamer. I see. Uh, anyway, if you didn't have that dream, well, if you get a chance to go to it, you will definitely have it now. Uh, Boryong Mud Festival is the hottest global event where you can forget about your stressful adult life, frolic in the mud, and spend a carefree weekend with your new friends. Chill in the mineral-rich mud and chase the summer heat away. So we go from fireball parties to the relaxation of sitting in the mud. Exactly. I, so it's a probably a good thing that you take your burns there after the party. Yeah, you, could probably, you could probably soothe those burns in the, in the, in the cool mud of Boreong. Now let's travel to Italy, shall we? I love Italy. I've been there a few times. An ancient land uh, must have, like Italy must have some very unusual festivals. But one of the oldest to be found in the boot-shaped peninsula is the Battle of the Oranges, which takes place in the small town of Ivrea, I-V-R-E-A, Ivrea, or maybe it's Ivrea, I'm not sure. 
According to the website myvenicelife.com, the Ivrea Battle of the Oranges is thought of as one of the oldest festivals in Italy. The Battle of Oranges finds its origin way back in the 12th century, so that's been around for quite a while. Wow. Is it still going strong? It is still going well, strong. It's still going strong. The way it started is really interesting. You see, there was an egregious baron uh-huh. who not only made the lives of the people difficult, but he also imposed the law of jus primus noctis, or simply put, this refers to the so-called right of nobles in a locality to violate women who were betrothed the night before their wedding. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. not a good one. Yeah, this is... I don't think this baron's going to So that's, that's the way it was going. Now, the baron went around abducting young girls who were about to be wed and sexually assaulted them. Countless women were victims of the baron's tyranny until he chose to abduct Violetta, the daughter of a miller. Refusing to obey this appalling law, the formidable woman unsheathed the sword and beheaded the baron when he tried to lay hands on her. That's <laughs> Yay, <right>. Violetta. <laughs> take it to him. We're, take it right. off him. <laughs> She then took his head and displayed it on the battlement in the town, which ignited the fire rebellion of the people. Yes. Yes, is what she started. The whole town rose up and fought against the oppression brought about by the nobles and ended up destroying their castle. Eventually, they succeeded in establishing a free town. The Battle of Oranges is not just a food fight. It recognized the valor of a young woman and how she freed an entire town. Now, during the festival, areas throughout Ivrea are allocated to groups of orange throwers who represent soldiers of the evil baron. They ride in horse-drawn carriages throughout the town, terrorizing the people by hitting them with oranges. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just walking about my normal day and whack! An orange could sting pretty good (laughs) if it hits you just right. It'll probably you a little well. Hmm. However, there are nine teams of other orange throwers who are also chosen who are on the side of the people. These teams are on foot. They strike back at the throwers on the carriages, and this is where things get really chaotic. Oranges seem to wind up everywhere, on the ground, on the floor, stuck to walls, on lampposts, and as far as the eye can see. We're talking 700 tons of oranges here in Debrea. You know, you got to know, that's got to get smelly at some point. Might draw yeah. some flies, I'm thinking, too. It was probably good at the beginning, but now, then it got dirty. Uh, if you if you want to go, uh, the Battle of the Oranges occurs each year for three days just before the beginning of Carnival or Mardi Gras. So it's probably happening in February this year. And so here's your chance to jump on out there. It's a three-day fight? A three-day fight of oranges. I'm just wow. – I'm kind of interested in – like I was kind of looking it up right now and, and Google's not <laughs> helping me out. And I have some of the weirdest Google search histories. But what does oranges have to do with this? Yeah, where do the oranges come Yeah, yeah. And, but I think – Is that what they were growing out in the field? Maybe that's what they, maybe also where the barons were making no, their money. I I think – okay, now, again, don't quote me and I couldn't find it real quick. But I think oranges were were associated with purity – and so, like a lot of Renaissance painters used oranges as symbolism in that. But I'm uh, again, don't don't. Let's go with that. that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah that's sure. it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> you know, we just fly by the seat of our pants uh-huh. here. Okay. So if we don't know the truth. We'll make it up. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Facts. Yeah, you know. What are that? Okay, so I have I have this really cool uh, celebration that we've mentioned before. So Ypres is a city in West Belgium that has an odd little celebration held every three years since 1955 on the second Sunday of May. Every three years on the second Sunday of May, like clockwork. Like clockwork. There's a reason why it's every three years. Um, and, okay, so we talked about this in the oddity du jour in our episode oh, on remarkable yeah. inventions. I think I remember this. But yeah. it's so weird, I feel like we have to include it here. 
Exactly. Is this so, cat chucking? Yep, it's ah, cat chucking. Chuck it's cat yeah. chucking. <laughs> cat throwing question. Cat and stoit, or parade of cats, <laughs> or colloquially colloquially known as cat throwing festival, but Phil calls it cat, cat chucking. Chuck <laughs> so from culturetrip.com, the afternoon see this is a quote, the afternoon sees an impressive parade with floats, giant cats, and about two thousand local volunteers dressed in medieval garb. Oh, that sounds like fun. So it's like a Renaissance festival, yeah. but you know, with yeah, cats. With cats. Yeah. Uh, the highlight of the day comes when the procession arrives at the bell tower. The jester throws plush cats into the sea of people on the market square below. Whoever catches a toy gets to make a wish. All right. Nice. So they are flinging stuffed animal cats, toys not taxidermy. <laughs> right. That would <laughs> hurt. <laughs> Off the bell tower, having an entire festival surrounding it. So how did a city come to celebrate this? Well, the origins are in the uh, in the folk folklore of the town. Its historical relationship with cats is a somewhat dark one. Back in medieval times around the 12th century, Ypres had a thriving cloth industry importing huge bales of wool and storing these along with uh, spun fabrics okay. in the Lachenhall. Lachenhall? Lachenhall. Okay. The cloth or hall. Yeah. Cloth hall. Yeah. That's right. So this proved to be, you know, just a huge draw for mice and rats who would chew holes through the town's livelihood. Well, that would eat into your profits, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Take Quite a big literally. Bite of it. Mm-hmm. So the solution to the problems was cats. So they brought in cats to control sure, the not? rodent population, but then there was a cat Imagine population that. Let's go back problem. To this they brought in cats. Where do you yeah. bring in cats from? I mean, uh, you know, every time I seem to, you know, somebody goes, oh, is there, you know, is there just cats? Yeah, everybody has kittens. Well, you that's know? true. Yeah. So anyway, so they, they brought in all these cats, and yeah. uh, that became a problem because their population got out of hand. And if you think about the Middle Ages, uh-huh. Uh, the cat was really side-eyed as being a big part of witchcraft and devilry. Hmm. So to deal with the problem of the town being overrun with evil felines, <laughs> the townspeople took to flinging the live cats off the top of the 70-meter Ooh, high tower. That, that would get messy. So that's like 230 feet for us Americans. Right up there. This brutal population control lasted all the way up until 1817 when the last live cat checked off the tower actually survived the fall and ran off in a huff. I guess. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's when the town decided to change their ways because if a cat, if an evil devil cat's going to yeah. survive, you, you know, yeah, you don't make a One out of so, how many thousand yeah. they checked off so, the top? Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe we don't do this anymore. Um, so no it cats bounced. were thrown in the city of Ypres for over a century until they decided to revive the tradition yeah, why not? in the 1930s by throwing stuffed animals. Oh, that's, that's, that's cute. <laughs> so according to uh, – this is still funny to me, the way this this just came about. According to AmusingPlanet.com, in uh, 1938, a group of young altar boys organized a sort of cat parade because that's what altar boys do, you know? Well, they yeah, read the history books so, and yeah. were like, hey, let's bring this one back yeah. and see if it sticks. <laughs> so each was carrying a toy cat. Like you do. Sure. Uh, when they reached the church, they first had a feast, and then one of the boys climbed up the bell tower and started throwing out the cats. Yeah. So the Festival of the Cats remained mostly a local fe- uh, festival until the 1950s when folklorist parades became all the rage. And so on the second Sunday of Lent in 1955, the first magnificent parade was organized with 1,500 extras all dressed in gorgeous costumes. Since then, every three years, the city has been celebrating Cat and Stoy Cats Festival. And, and the reason – that it's every three years because that's how long it took for the population to get out of control. Oh. 
So I the, see. <laughs> the festival was supposed to be held last year, but due to COVID, the celebration was moved to May. This May on the seventh and eighth. So oh, two thousand twenty-two, May seventh right. and eighth. Let's. I, th- I think uh, remnant stew road trip. Right. Yeah, probably, probably need right. an airplane for that one. Sponsorships, come on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll wear your T-shirt on our back at the yeah, we'll, festival. We'll, come on, we'll take it with us. <laughs> exactly. Well, now from Belgium, let's travel north of the United States border into our friends up in Canada. Canada's Yukon territory and experience. Oh, we're the, going way up. We're going way up. That's right. The International Hair Freezing Competition. Okay. That's right. The International Hair Freezing Competition. The contest has been around since 2011. Well, that's a long tradition, isn't it? Steadily gaining popularity over the many, many years since then, as the outlandish image has uh, been getting uh, uh, global publicity. Did it just hit a decade, or is it now plus a decade? Uh, it's plus we're one. In, I think we're okay. in the second, second decade, decade now. Yeah, second yeah. decade, right. <laughs> According to CNNTravel.com, the contest takes place at a location called Takini Hot Pools, which is a natural hot spring near Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory. To enter, you need to visit Takini Hot Pools between December and March on a day when the temperature is below negative 20 degrees Celsius or negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is certainly not rare in those parts. There are a few steps involved in achieving the perfect look. First, Dip your head in the hot spring and wet your hair completely. (laughs) By the way, freezing your hair won't damage it, they promise. Then, (laughs) allow the cold air to slowly freeze your hair. As it freezes, you can freeform it into any strange shape you like. The stranger, the better. I think we have some pictures of this. We do, and we're going to put them on our Facebook page, yeah. Uh, staff advises visitors to keep their ears warm by periodically dipping them back in the hot water. You know, you don't want to freeze your ears. Yeah, just not freeze, freeze your, your ears. hair. Right. Um, and you're going to have to be patient. All that wet hair will eventually freeze, eyebrows and eyelashes included. <laughs> Finally, once you're happy with your style, ring the bell near the pool entrance and staff will run, come running to take your photo. Uh, contestants, sorry, contestants are awarded in five categories. Best male, best female, best group. So you can get a whole family oh, group together right there. Nice. Uh, Nongshim's People's Choice and Tim Horton's Most Creative. Tim Horton's, I think, is a restaurant up in Canada. Anyway, the winner for each category gets two thousand Canadian dollars and free hot springs passes for a whole year. Hey, hey! <laughs> right. Now I, I could deal. I could do a whole lot more with my hair than you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would be a judge. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I can get my beard to stand up, I guess, a little bit maybe. I don't know. Well, now let's move on from uh, from Canada across the ocean to Spain for a very weird celebration. Celebrated each year in the small town of Castrillo de Murcia, the Salto de Colacho. Salto I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm saying, that, I'm saying that wrong. Salto del Coleco. I think it's Coleco. 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 Yeah, okay, that's better. Salto del Coleco is a week-long celebration which culminates with a man dressed as a devil, terrorizing locals, and jumping over babies. Jumping babies. Uh, Jumping over babies. Jumping over babies. Jumping jumping over over babies. babies. (laughs) 
Controversial as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, the celebration <laughs> is believed to cleanse the newborns of their original sin. Frowned upon by right. the Catholic Frowned Church. Frowned upon by the Pope. Jumping That's over right. the baby as just as the devil right. cleanses them from their... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm yeah. not... Okay. I'm not following the logic, but, yeah. you know, they say it works. Okay. There's but, a, Are there oranges and fireballs involved? Well, not yet. Okay, cool. <laughs> According to a website called culturetrip.com, there is no record of when the first Salto del uh, Coleco, uh, or Jump of the Devil, was organized. Local historians <laughs> believe it has taken place every year since at least the 1600s. So it's been going on for it's a while. It's been a while. Longer than, what, 2011? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> longer than 2011. But that's okay. Longer, longer than hair freezing. Everything has to start sometime. <laughs> that's right? right. The babies are laid in swaddling claws on paths in the middle of the street, and grown men, yes, yeah, adult males. You don't want males, them getting up and crawling away. They need, the, they no, need this. Need to be swaddled. Uh, yeah, adult males dressed as devils run down the street and hurtle over the infants. <laughs> this is supposed to cleanse them, the babies, not the men, of all evil doings. This traditional combination of religion and Spanish folklore proves to be great fun, if not a little scary to watch. According to the Atlas Obscura, there have been no known injuries caused by the flying devils. However, the strange practice has been frowned upon by the Catholic Church, <laughs> uh, with Pope Benedict asking the Spanish people to distance themselves from the practice. However, and, and now a bunch of mamas, too, <laughs> are frowning, going, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. However, the ritual continues to this day. No one's going to tell the people of Castillo del Murcia that they can't send their devil men hurtling over infants. Now, let's say your parents were too scaredy cats to include you as part of this ritual. What can you do to bask in the glow of the protective rights? Are you rights getting swaddled too? <laughs> offered by the Salto del Colaco. Oh, Colacho, Colaco. Colico, Colico, Colico. Colico. I don't know. Wow. I'm getting hungry. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who has not been blessed with receiving this protection during their early childhood and has lived life looking over their shoulder waiting for bad things to happen, <laughs> well, then in their adulthood, they can choose to take part in an exercise called Ugueras. This involves jumping through fire. Oh, right, the no, there was our fireballs. Oh, yeah, okay. Fire oh, yeah. is Okay. Maybe you're supposed to hold oranges, too. <laughs> Completely well, jumping through hoops. Got it. Yeah. Jumping through fire <laughs> is intended to protect them from illness and other catastrophes. And this information came from SpanishFiestas.com. Which, that sounds like an awesome website. <laughs> <laughs> now, while we're on the topic of babies... Oh, sure, why not? Let's leap from Spain and go halfway around the world to the island nation of Japan, where we will discover the Naki Sumo Baby Crying Contest. That's right. This comes to us from TheSmartLocal.com. The Nako Sumo Baby Crying Contest. You see, with a history of more than 400 years, the Nako, I'm sorry, Naki Sumo Baby Crying Contest. <laughs> Say that five times. It's not your Naki. baby crying contest. <laughs> Naki, it's an A-K-I. Naki Sumo Baby Crying Contest is a traditional festival organized annually in shrines across Japan. Typically held on Children's Day, which is the 5th of May, the premise of the tradition event, a traditional event is simple. Sumo wrestlers compete to get babies to cry. <laughs> All right. That summed it up. <laughs> Two sumo wrestlers, each with a baby in a hand, will enter the Dohio, Do which is the wrestling ring where matches are actually held. There, they have to do everything and anything at their disposal to induce some tears. 
This includes making silly or scary faces, loud noises, or bouncing the baby lightly. The first infant to wail will win the competition. If two competing babies happen to burst into tears simultaneously, the one with the louder cry will be declared the winner and blessed with the good health. If the babies refuse to cooperate and burst out laughing instead, then the priest slash referee will don a scary mask and try to induce some tears himself. Making babies cry may sound counterintuitive. Have they not seen monsters? (laughs) Really? But the traditional event has its roots in the old Japanese saying, Naku ko wasudatsu, which means, where are the keys to my Datsun? No, no, no. no. It just means, uh, I'm sorry, wrong line here. It means uh, uh, crying children grow. Traditionally, it is believed that a crying baby has the power to ward off evil spirits, and a strong, loud cry implies that a child will grow strong. Yeah, no one wants to stick around for that. Well, you know. (laughs) You might be an evil spirit. (laughs) (laughs) They used to spank babies when they were born to get them to cry. That's right. Mm -hmm. Get them lungs going. Right, get the lungs going. Thus, the event is hugely popular among parents, believe it or not. Uh, Most shrines require an advanced application and a fee of about $125. Uh, For the more popular shrines, a lottery system is even used to determine the lucky infants who get to participate in the competition. (laughs) Because there's only so many sumos. (laughs) Right. If you have a temperamental baby who cries easily or knows someone who does, this is their time to shine. (laughs) Participation is not... This contest is rigged. (laughs) No, it's not limited to locals for good reason, as tears are universal. So, if you're planning to take your baby from the United States to compete, maybe they can get in some practice during the 19-hour flight ride over to Japan, (laughs) and you will certainly be very popular with your teammates. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's bring it down a notch. How about a festival celebrating near-death experiences? Oh, that sounds like fun. (laughs) Yeah, it does sound like that, right? I mean, fireballs, oranges, cat tossing. Yeah, why not? Let's go. Let's so, so have either one of you come close to death? Like, not that I'm aware of. No, I, I don't. Oh, well. See, I think I think my mom killed me a couple uh, times. And brought if me back. now now looks or thoughts could kill, I've been dead millions <laughs> of times. No worries there. No, I've come close a few times in my life. But uh, the Fiesta de Marta de Ribardame, I think I said that right, is an annual event held on July 29th every year in the small town of Las Niavas. In, in Spain. So the city, oh, we're back to Spain yeah, already. back to Spain. So the, the city more than doubles its population of just over 4,000 each year as people come to pay their respects to the Saint of Death, Santa Marta, or Saint Martha. So, okay. so if you recognize Martha from the Bible, she was the sister of Lazarus. Of Lazarus. Yeah. yeah, that was brought back from the dead uh, by Jesus. And so... That's the association with near-death experiences. I, I, you know, I've always like wanted to ask Lazarus, what was what was yeah, that what like? Was like? like I mean, where, come on. Yeah. Anyway, so back. Yeah. during the the festival, uh, during the festival, locals and now increasingly those from surrounding areas as well that have had a brush with death in the past year come to give thanks to the saint for their survival. There is a procession through the town led by an effigy of Santa Marta with people following and chanting, Virgin Mary, I'm sorry, not Virgin Mary, I'm sorry, that's my Catholicism coming out. Right. Wow. <laughs> Virgin Santa Marta, nar- star of the north, we bring you those who saw death. The people making up the parade are the loved ones of those who had the near-death experience. Oh, okay. Their friends and family dress as if for a funeral and carry their survivor through the streets in a coffin. So those families, nice. those without family or friends attending the festival struggle 
to carry their own coffin through the streets. Remember, you must die. That was from a different so, podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Momentum morum. Momentum morum. Um, the profession, the profession, the procession, the parade is a somber one and ends at a chapel where mass then takes place. The chapel is way too small now for everyone to fit inside. So it's broadcast through speakers through the people gathered outside. And, you know, and so this is, you know, it's a time of reflection and, and everything. And it's kind of somber. But. Like, whoa, I nearly died. Yeah, wait till it's, it's over. Party. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lively celebration. <laughs> the spectators uh, have a great time dancing, eating and lighting off fireworks. So there's uh, fire of course, involved. All, all kinds of fire. Um, and then there's vendors selling food and religious mementos. It's a chance for everyone to share any stories that they have of coming close to death. The Festa, Fiesta de Marta de Rebartame is a joyous celebration of the gift of life. So nice. I, I got my uh, info from SpanishFiestas.com. Hey, we like that website. That's right. Okay, so um, lightening it up a little bit. Every April, the people of, um, I think it's Carupola. It's probably Kairapala. I bet that's it. That sounds good. A village in southern India. Celebrate the annual Ugadi festival by celebrating in the, or by participating rather, in the Pitakala War, which often leaves many. The, the Pitakala War. The Pitakala War. So they reenact the Pitakala War. P I D A K A L A. Now wait. Or at least. Listen. Okay. Hold on. I got wait questions. For it. <laughs> wait for it. Okay, so so the partic- participation in this Pitakala War often leaves many participants injured. And so you ask, what is Pitakala? Well, Pitakala means cow dung. Oh, <laughs> hey, we've done that here in Texas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they won't admit right. that the Firebar War has <laughs> anybody injured. But, but the cow, Pitakala yeah. War, they're like, yeah, people well, get listen, hurt. That, you know, I mean, we know about cows. Like, that's, yeah, that, it, it dries to this oh, park. It's, okay. it's rocks. So yeah, every exactly. year, the people of Kairapala... The, and neighboring villages take part in the symbolic war that occurs over a mythological Hindu marriage dispute. Well, now, keeping in mind, the cows are sacred in India, right? So yeah, maybe so there's a, a lot of meaning. them. It could be blessing by getting, <laughs> right, getting whacked. Clung with, with some cow dung. You're being blessed. So, I bless you, whack. <laughs> one, no, it's, it's actually uh, – uh, a re- reenactment of a, of okay. a dispute. I'm of sorry, a I okay, so sorry, one we're side, have too much fun with this, and she won't get through this whole segment. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to spend two hours on this one. One side throws pitakala or, or cow patties in the name of the goddess Budrakali or Budrakali, I think, um, while the other do so in the name of Lord Virabhadraswamy. Virabhadra Swami. That was very impressive. That's, yeah, that thank was really you. Good. That was, yeah, was thank so, you. Wow. Until one side wins and they all celebrate the wedding of the two. So according how, how to legend, who won? <laughs> you know, everyone I, else is down. Okay. <laughs> Are you run out of There's ammunition? Out of I'm thinking, and right, I could good. be wrong. Okay, so uh, according to legend, Lord, uh, here I go again. Virabhadra Swami. A fearsome form of the Hindu god Shiva, I can say Shiva, that's uh-huh. easy, and the goddess Budrakali uh, fell in love and decided to marry. In order to tease his beloved, dude Swami <laughs> declared that he no longer wanted to get married. Uh-oh. This, this is not going to en- I'll play a trick on her. Yeah, She'll right? like it. It'll be fun. This will be fun. Yeah, yeah. this enraged this her go well. and her clansmen, and they retaliated by beating the mischievous groom 
with cow patties. (laughs) (laughs) The other side retaliated, but the battle ended in compromise and the divine wedding took place. But she never trusted him after that. Yeah, so listen, the the villagers now celebrate their union by reenacting their mythical battle uh, using the same unconventional weapons. So mounds of dried cow dung are collected and heaped in the center of the village for like days, weeks in advance. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and participants... Uh Are split into two groups, and so for well, for those of the, you that don't know much about cow patties, like they don't smell a whole lot. Yeah, they, that kind of goes dry. away. Yeah, yeah, when they're dried out, it's just like so. I mean, I'm not throwing dirt balls. Yeah, it's. I'm not saying it's not gross. Like I'm not <laughs> yeah. loving it. But, you know, you're getting hit by it. But it's better than a steaming pile of <laughs> right, you know, no, fresh. You know, you don't want a fresh one. <laughs> so the participants are split That's into it. two groups. I quit. That was too fresh. <laughs> <laughs> one on this side, some on this side. Anyway, so spectators climb into trees near by rooftops to avoid being hit. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to stop it. (laughs) And their participants believe this annual tradition brings them good health and prosperity. Because why not? If you survive right. it, sure. And we'll also bring rain to the village, hopefully, yeah. after that, right? right. we got to watch. <laughs> then, then it's going to be well fertilized, too, once the rain comes. And at the end of the day, just like the mythical battle, the two sides come together to finish out the celebration in harmony. And party. Uh-huh. Info from, get this, randomtimes.com. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, here in Texas, we have things like um, uh, cow patty bingo. Right. Have you seen yeah. that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, yeah. so... If you're not it's familiar, it's a true right? weird thing, but leave it to us. It's also called cow plop bingo, cow mm-hmm. chip bingo, and it works by allowing a well-fed cow to meander around a pasture that's been fenced off and marked off in squares, or or sometimes like on pavement and parking lot that's been marked off by um, chalk. So each square is clearly numbered, and those numbers are sold off like raffle tickets. And if the cow decorate your square with a with the cow patty then you win so what you win may vary from money to a specific prize and i've seen contests where you get to choose from a selection of baked goods because you know cow patties baked hey, goods why, why not, not? Yeah, you yeah. know a pan of uh, banana pudding made in exchange for a cow chip seems like a <laughs> fair trade to me right. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite memories uh, when i was a kid i had an uncle who was a uh, who was actually a secret service man he worked for the treasury department in washington and when he came to Texas to visit once, we took him to the LBJ Ranch, and he actually found some of LBJ's cows' patties, and he was so excited, he took them back to Washington, <laughs> D.C. and handed them out to his friends. So. Oh <laughs> Anything's a moment to people. A, That's just all we're saying. Oh, my right. <laughs> and now for something completely off-topic and off-kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. Well, now it's time for the oddity. Oddity du jour. Uh, and this one we're going way back in time to the year 1697 and to the country of Russia. And the Russians are Peter the Great. Now, he set out uh, in that year on a two-and-a-half-year tour of Europe. He wanted to see out what, what was out check west it out. of him. Yeah. yeah, why not? And he chose to travel incognito, adopting the name Sergeant Peter Mikhailov. They'll never know who I really yeah. am. Uh, nonetheless, excitement rumored, uh, I'm sorry, excited rumors of his visit spread from town to town, heralding him as a giant, seven feet tall, brilliant, and only half civilized. Well, those things don't <laughs> only half, good, you know. Anyway, the trip would uh, consume <laughs> the next two years, and for a time, he even worked at a Dutch shipyard to learn shipbuilding techniques. He visited heads of state, collections of natural curiosities, and he threw legendarily wild parties. One particularly raucous event left every one of his host's chairs smashed to pieces 
His painting shredded into ribbons and chunks of pavement torn out of the ground. <laughs> now, that's a heck of a party. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say so. It's yes. so, a first rock concert right there. <laughs> after his trip was over, he returned back to Russia and he immediately launched into a process of, quote, Europeanizing his homeland. And the first casualty of the Tsar's new enthusiasms were the beards of his court nobles. Uh-oh. Peter shocked his guests by shaving his own beard and then insisted that each of the noblemen present do the same. He doubled down at his New Year's banquet, uh, at which his razor-wielding jester worked the crowd, giving a box on the ears to anyone who seemed reluctant to shave. Peter then issued a decree that any man in Russia who refused to shave was to be subject to a, quote, beard tax. That's right, a beard tax. Wow. The idea quickly ran afoul of the Russian Orthodox Church, which had long held that uncut facial hair was a symbol of piety. Man was created in the image of God, and that includes the beard. To shave it was a grave sin, they said. I never <laughs> pictured God with a beard, but okay. Another Russian tradition that Peter uh, tried to change was wearing of long coats. Evidently, he felt that the shorter jackets that he had seen in Paris were much more stylish than the long robes worn by citizens of Moscow. I'm kind of thinking Moscow's a lot colder than Paris. Paris, yeah. right? Yeah. You might want the anyway, long jacket for the right. wind. And the beard. Anyway, and the beard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He set up mannequins outside of the Moscow city gate to illustrate the new fashion for all to see. Tailors who continued to sell uh, Russian-style uh, jackets ran the risk of steep fines, and anyone walking the street in an old-fashioned robe was liable to have, their, have it uh, shorn short by the czar's inspectors. Well, in 1705, a group of military officers finally had enough of the Tsar's uh, stressful new rules. Uh, they were known as the Strelsky. They initiated an open revolt in the town of uh, Astrakhan. A letter from the rebels proclaimed that they were taking a stand for the Christian faith and against shaving and foreign dress. The revolt was crushed, though, and hundreds of rebels <laughs> lost their lives. And thus, for the rest of Peter the Great's reign, any citizen who wished to sport whiskers was forced to show evidence of having paid the annual beard tax. And this information came from a website called dailyjester.com, J-S-T-E-R.com. <laughs> so, beard tax for your audience. So, I think you Was did it based it. on length? I mean, I'm just going to, I just, just got questions. I've got questions. Yeah, I mean, like stubble. I mean, seriously, like, it's like, what, what point no, is. shave it up. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep maybe, it clean. maybe the tax was based on length. Like, you yeah. know. But it's, an, annu it's an annual tax. Yeah, well, and so yeah. at a certain time. Yeah, yeah they, you have to pay the tax and you can grow your beard that for year. For the year. Yeah. And then you have to shave it. So, a few episodes, a few episodes ago, you did an oddity on high heels, men's high heels. So, like, you are like a men's fashionista. Into the fashions of the oddity fashions, and, and that's the, what I'm known for. <laughs> okay, okay. So, bringing it back to festivals and celebrations, what about a worm charming festival? Well, why not? Oh, well, we've already gone through <laughs> cow tossing, fireballing, cow tossing. You oh, mean sorry. cow poop tossing? Cat, poop cat tossing. tossing, cat cat, cat chucking, yeah, cat chucking, yeah, orange tosses, and frozen fireballs, hair. frozen hair, yeah. Okay. Kalachis. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Jumping over babies. <laughs> Jumping over babies. All right. Okay, so now we have the Worm Charming Festival, which is relatively new as it began in the 1980s. When a drunk man... <laughs> <laughs> Imagine this. Wait, wait, let me guess. In wait, England? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Hold my beer. <laughs> in Devon County, England. I knew it. <laughs> 
stumbled into a field to relieve himself. There you go. <laughs> and then stood there in a stupor watching earthworms wiggling up out of the ground, apparently in response to his peeing on them. Um, he called his all of his friends over to come have a Check look. Check it out! Hey, mate, come watch this. <laughs> You're never going to believe it. So worm charming is any method, use, including relieving yourself, used to coax worms to come out of the ground. So... It, in, in, instead of digging, I guess. Yeah. So Why um, work for it? Since 1984, the town of Blackhawton, I think that's how it's pronounced, there in Devon has held an annual worm charming festival each May in which participants compete to see who can collect the most worms in a 15-minute period. Luckily, they use many other methods than peeing. Some use pitchforks <laughs> to tap the ground, mimicking a pecking bird. Some put speakers in the ground or beat drums. Why would they make the worm um, come out if the bird's right. pecking out? <laughs> so, well, and I think everything is like about um, okay, the anyway. vibrations and the, you know. Ah. And so one woman tap dances on a board to the Star Wars theme. <laughs> which, I mean, I like, okay. I like uh, tap da, dance da, 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 da. and I like yeah. classical music, but it just... <laughs> Okay. Um, the idea is that the vibrations bring the worms out. So many people right. do use liquids that they pour onto the ground like beer or sugar water. Urinating is highly discouraged, but it still happens okay. occasionally. <laughs> so vinegar or anything toxic they may, that may hurt the worms is prohibited because the, the safety of the worms is a high priority. Yeah. No, this. Worms, no worms were injured in the uh, participation That's right. podcast. That's right. Festival. And, <laughs> <laughs> or in this podcast. That's right. So, in fact, any participant that uses a liquid is required by the judges to first take a swig of it. <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> yes, so, people, let that one sink in for a minute. Yeah. How, how did this one start? <laughs> well, you know. So there's also no digging. You have to entice the worms to come out by themselves. And if you grab one too soon, you run the risk of tearing it into pieces and uh -oh. you don't get to count Penalty. it. Penalty. So you have to have fully intact worms. The record was set in 1986, which, okay, so when did this, when did this start? This started in the 1980s. 1980s yeah. So that yeah. was a really early record wow. with 149 worms being <sighs> collected. In 15 uh, we can beat minutes, that. Come on now. <laughs> the lowest number of worms collected by a winner was just 19 because yeah. weather plays a large part uh, in the yeah. cooperation of the worms. It, yeah. Cheaters will be disqualified and publicly humiliated, which I'm not sure exactly how, but that that's going to be cool to see. Um, <laughs> the humiliation? Yeah, well, the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, but right, yeah, yeah, that too. There's an official cheat that walks around with handfuls of worms trying to tempt participants to cheat. So apparently that's like part of part the gag. Part, yeah, part of the gag. And then all worms are, are, you know, rest assured, return to the ground after oh, the competition. Nice. Yeah, and they back. spread them back out. And they do it at night to prevent the birds from finding them and chowing down. Yeah, that's nice. The festival's just a fun and wacky day with celebrants uh, dressing up in costumes or fancy dress. There's dog shows. I don't know why Where? there's dog shows, but there's dog shows well, you know, attached to this. I don't know. If and the crowd can't see them, they got to go see something else. I guess. Yeah. I mean, because watching worms, kind of thing, I don't know. <laughs> but it's just 15 minutes. So I have. To, I guess I have to add other things. There's donkey rides and petting zoos. Just fun all around. And now I want to go. <laughs> um, info from Rochambeau Unique Competitions and or Extraordinary Events podcasts in their Worms, Small Food, and Two-Legged Horses episode. That's a great combination oh, nice. right there. I know, right? <laughs> nice. You know, I know of a local country boy here in the greater cut-and-shoot area who actually uh, hooks up his pickup truck battery to a couple of posts in the ground. 
uh, with the with with a, with a couple of leads, and uh, he says that he claims that that brings the worms up out of the ground. I don't know for sure if that um, really is the case, but that's what he claims. He does that in the uh. graveyard or bring some people up out of the ground, like <laughs> oh, no. like electrifying the ground. Exactly. Anyway. Well, speaking of drunk Englishmen, let's move on to our next story. <laughs> um, well, we uh, we we actually have to take our shoes off and our socks off. And hopping again to the United Kingdom, it appears that back in 1974, this one's even older oh, than that last one. A few years before, <laughs> four patrons of Ye Old Royal, I'm sorry, Ye Old Royal Oak Inn in Wetton, Staffordshire, England, were getting pretty deep into their cuffs as they began <laughs> bemoaning the fact that the UK had failed to produce a world champion at anything for quite some period of time. Logically, if a new sport was invented that no one else knew about, then the country could boast a champion at last. <laughs> we'll just think of something new, and we'll be it. So they for a did some while. experimenting. Uh, they tried uh, ear wrestling. That didn't work out. Ear they tried wrestling. push of war rather than tug of war. Oh that didn't gosh. quite work out. But then they finally hit on a hit a real winner: toe wrestling. <laughs> That's right, uh, toe wrestling. By the way, these fellas' names are. Pete Cheatham, Eddie Stansfield, Peter Dean, and Mick Dawson uh, from the, the website called Denwasensei, D-E-N-W-A-S-S-E-N-S-A-I.com. We learned that the founding four, noted above, developed a set of rules and even constructed small stages called <laughs> totiums upon which the toe wrestling is you to be accomplished. You can't make this stuff up, folks, because okay. honestly, it's <laughs> oh. awesome. The match requires players to use bare feet. Thus, must take off their socks and shoes first. And as a common courtesy, a player is required to remove the socks and shoes of his opponent. How gentlemanly. I, I'm not loving this. I, I, this is so uncomfortable. How many bottles of hand sanitizer or foot sanitizer? I don't know. But uh, then the players would sit down and proceed to interlock their oh, toes. No. Each person wrestling foot should be touching flat with the other person's wrestling foot. Meanwhile, the other foot should be raised in the air. One version of the sport requires a player to pin the opponent's foot to score. Once done, a referee will count to three uh, three seconds. If the other player's foot remains trapped for the ent- entirety of the three-second time, that would be a toe-down. Oh. The player who successfully did the pinning gets a point. However, there's a more popular uh, version of the sport that is played in tournaments. Yes, that's of right. Of course. They have toe-wrestling tournaments. Well, yeah, if you're going to do wrestling, in this have version, a good tournament. A referee will say, toes away. <laughs> and, and, and with that mark, the players would need to make, uh, make their opponent's foot touch one of the sideboards of the totium to score. The first player to score two points wins the game. The first round is played using the right foot, the second with the left, and then if the right foot again if the game ends in a tiebreaker. So we'll go back to the right foot. So if you are stronger with your right foot, you have an advantage under those rules. It seems Best like two out of three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, you know what? I didn't think about that. You have to. Okay. So like when you're arm wrestle, you do both your, you know, both right arms or both, you know, left arms. Uh-huh. But I guess when you toe wrestle, it has to be, be one right, yeah. one left. Yeah. And then the tiebreaker. back to the right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mick Dawson, one of the founding four, won the first toe wrestling championship in 1974. And then again, the following year. However, in 1976, sadly, the British saw the toe trophy taken by a Canadian. <laughs> Darn Canadians. Uh, the home they country, let them come across the pond? <laughs> the home country regained the championship again in 1994 with the efforts of Alan, quote, Nasty Nash. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. They, 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 lost, they lost it from 76 to 94. To 94. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then 94, um, they held it. Okay. Now, Nash has actually won the title 
16 times, most recently in 2019. You might have won even more. However, I love this is wording right from the uh, their website. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. The, the Total Wrestling Championship had to be canceled between the years 2003 and 2009 due to an unruly crowd. <laughs> <laughs> They couldn't work it in during the six year period. They have to have rules about toenails. Like you can't have these claws. I'm sure. Yeah. Alan has the uh, the very essence of the sport in mind. Nasty Nash. This is his quote from him. He says, "The Brits invented toe wrestling, hoping to be best at something." Uh, I am a very patriotic man, and I want to make sure that when I retire, it's a good Englishman who beats me. So, there we go. I can, okay, so I picture like Mr. Bean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I, I don't like that festival. I don't. I, don't, I just. You, you get so, a little squeamish. Yes, well, you, I you did. raised a bunch of boys that had bare feet in the house, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Really. yeah, feet are nasty. <laughs> Well, now back to the good old United States. From culturetrip.com, we learn about the fascinating town of Nederland, Colorado, and their three-day-long Frozen Dead Guy Days Festival. <laughs> what? Every March, the people of Nederland break out their coffins and frozen turkeys and toast a cold one in honor of Grandpa Brito. It turns out that there is an actual history to the three-day death-themed shindig, and it all centers <laughs> around a Norwegian guy named Brito Morstol who, as luck would have it, didn't ever actually visit the United States until after he died, which <laughs> occurred in 1989. Okay. Can we just take a minute? <laughs> just clip this sink in. When I asked you to be a part of this podcast, <laughs> did you think you'd ever say that? <laughs> that sentence, uh, no, a three-day three death-themed shindig. Right. <laughs> Frozen dead guy day. Oh, goodness. Festival. We're, yeah. We're, we're all about quality. Well, oh. anyway, Brito's grandson, oh, I can't even say his name, Tur let's say Turge Bog, had his grandpa <laughs> shipped overseas and stored in a cryogenics facility until he put the finishing touches in his, on his own homemade cryogenic storage chamber. Why not? Involving yeah. a tough shed. Um, <laughs> you can pick one of those up at Home Depot. Behind his house where he lived in Nederland with his mother. He believed that science would one day find a way to counteract aging and the body's frailties and that his grandfather would be able to be reanimated. Rito's body remained peacefully in a tough shed uh, behind the house, built to withstand all manner of natural disasters packed with some 1,600 pounds of dry ice each month. So it really was a tough shit. I thought you made uh, yeah. that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everything was going swell until the family was evicted and <laughs> finally sent back to Norway. <laughs> then the question became, what to do about Grandpa Brito? Okay, I wonder why they were evicted. He wasn't evicted, like, evidently. You know, were they evicted because of the Grandpa Brito, Brito or did, well, did they not detail. know that? Okay. We don't have we those details. just got kicked out and Brito got to stay. I don't know why he got evicted or why they had to go back to Norway, but, uh, you know, he got to stay. Uh. Well, after a slew of town meetings and some new legislation about keeping frozen bodies on private property was passed, <laughs> Brito was quite literally grandfathered in. <laughs> <laughs> and town councilman Bo Schaefer, oh who is now known as the Iceman, was hired to play caretaker to the frozen dead guy in the shed. <laughs> now, for over 20 years, he and his team of volunteers go once a month to pack Brito's body with ice and keep him at a constant temperature of minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And so a legend was born. 
The already quirky mountain town embraced Brito's <laughs> presence with open arms and created Frozen Dead Guy Days, which has launched into a three-day festival that draws in people from all over the world. The festival now features 30 live bands, as well as a whole slew of death and ice-themed events, <laughs> from coffin racing and frozen turkey bowling to the costumed polar plunge and frozen t-shirt competitions. I- I'd compete in the frozen turkey bowling, I have to admit. that. Oh. Yeah. But I would, I would ask, are they going to change it into or add another layer of it called turkey curling? Turkey Just curling. Curl- I think oh, you could buy cool. it. Yeah, uh, just they, turkey. Yeah, I think frozen the Canadians turkey, are pushing for that. Right, yeah. frozen turkey curling into the festival. I mean, right. that that, may, that would make sense, you know. Now the festival <laughs> kicks off on a Friday night with the Blue Ball, a night of dancing and live entertainment. The weekend is chock full of events, and three day passes are available. There's plenty of food, beer, and fun for everyone involved. So if you're looking for something different to do this March, it sounds like. Frozen Dead Guy Days up in Nederland, Colorado is a solid option for you. <laughs> uh, the reservations required. <laughs> I looked at Leah just a second ago. She finishing. She's like, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave <laughs> the blue leave ball alone. alone. <laughs> okay. There's no wedding on. involved as far as I know. Bringing it in. <laughs> the next one is a competition rather than festival or celebration, but it's too, too cool not to mention. Every year since 1996, people from all over gather to compete in the Air Guitar World Ooh, Championships. yeah, Air Guitar. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, musician Jaka Tekelo, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, is the genius that came up with the idea of having this type of competition. The first one was held in 1996. In um, Ulu, Finland. I think it's Ulu. I think it's Uwalu. O-U-L-U. I don't. Yeah. As part of the music festival. But over the years, the event has grown into its own event and spread into competitions around the world in over 10 different countries. Wow. So in 2021, just last year, the countries in the official Air Guitar World Championship Network (laughs) are USA, Iceland, the UK, Japan, Canada, France, Germany, Thailand, Australia, Belgium, Poland, Poland, Chile, and Taiwan. Oh, okay. So air guitarists take the competition very seriously. Creativity is the main focus with all manner of costumes, body paint, and guitar playing techniques being displayed to the delight of the spectators. <laughs> mm, nice. um, and I think what happens is they they get to they they get to choose a song to do their air guitar to, and then one song is chosen for them. So oh yeah. wow! Right. Um, according to airguitarchampionships.com, the purpose of the competition is to promote world peace. According to the ideology of the competition, wars would end, climate change stop, and all bad things disappear if all the people in the world played the air guitar. Well, you know, that's a, yeah, they, just, got, they got a point there. Yeah, it would relieve stress. This is why the whole universe is invited to play the air guitar for the wor- world peace at the end of the competition. So everybody. And, and then to soothe again. your fingers, you go to Pyongyang's mud festival. Yeah, yeah, there right. you go. Yeah. I've seen but how the, this works. The official motto is make air, not war. <laughs> 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 Which nice. to me sounds like a farting competition. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> You've raised too many boys. That's the way. And, <laughs> There's a different championship for that. You yeah. just didn't yes. put it in this yeah, episode. I did. <laughs> I'm sure there's one out there. I got my information from Wikipedia. <laughs> nice. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Yay! 
All right, it's time for that trivia challenge again. You know how this works. You want to like and follow our Facebook page, Rem- uh, I'm sorry, at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all of that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. So, and- Leah, what is our question today? Okay, well, before before we get to it, I might... Send you some socks to cover your nasty feet. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> some really no, I have some really cool socks to send out. So Clean. uh people answering our trivia questions have kind of dropped off lately for some reason. Oh, come on, so folks. Come on. Get in Step there the and uh, yeah, go. that's right. Let's go. So this one, this festival held every May is believed to be over six hundred years old. It involves four competitions, three for men and one for women. It is a bit notorious because it results in several participant injuries each year. What is this festival, and where is it located? Oh, that's an interesting one. That's a really interesting one. Phil here reminding you to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages at Remnant Stew Podcast. Drop us an email at staycurious at remnantstew.com just to say hi or let us know about any topics you would like to hear us cover in an upcoming episode. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with plenty of commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkfeld. You make it sound good, Phil. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gould. Before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Please. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, and your local undertaker. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and And always always stay curious. curious.